All right, we are going to teach, the, we, are, we are going to study together the Third Zen Patriarch this morning. Faith verses of the Third Zen Patriarch. Um, I want to set it in this context. The, the first thing I'd like to do, um, well, in a minute, I'll read it to you. It's quite short. Remember I told you uh, last week that for one of these uh, just interesting things in life, I recently, it's a thing that you notice after the fact that couldn't be true if it hadn't happened, but I've had this in my purse for at least 25 years. It was published in 1976, and I, someone gave it to me, this little pamphlet, and I, I liked it so well, I put it in my purse, you know how people carry around a breviary in their purse forever so that wherever they might be, in an airport or somewhere, they might read it. I've had it in my purse for 25 years. And uh, every once in a while you get a new purse, you change, you, you know, but you put your old wallet in your new purse until it wears out. And I, the only things that have constantly been in there for uh, the whole time is this particular faith verses, 25 years. and. Um, a baby picture of my eldest son, for some reason. I put it in my wallet 45 years ago. It's a tiny little picture of him. And somehow I moved wallets, I changed photos, I, you know, grandchildren photos. But that baby picture of him has been in the wallet for 45 years. I don't know why that's true, it's just true. And this is very soothing to me to listen to. I'll read it to you in a minute. I want to put it in this context. It's soothing and it's uplifting. That's the, the context. Yesterday, I met with somebody who t was talking to me about his spiritual practice. And he said, you know, I don't know if I could really think of myself as a person who's spiritual. He said, I'm this, I, meditation just does not do it for me. He said, I really have tried, um, been to several retreats. And he said, you know, what really excites me is reading um, philosophical literature. I like to read about. Um, so he reads, uh, he reads interpretations. He uh, reads quantum physics. Um, says that he said that actually quantum physics really doesn't sound like uh, philosophy. First I was interested in philosophy. Now I'm reading quantum physics. He said, you know, but when I read it, it just so lifts up my soul. I just get such a sense of the grandeur of things, the amazingness of things. He said, that just lifts me up. And now is, uh, for the people for whom it lifts up, now is sort of the, the um, I'm trying to think of a better word than heyday, the Nalanda Institute, the Nalanda University. Now is the great time in history to be interested in quantum physics because of pushing the edges of what people know and all kinds of people thinking about all kinds of ways of understanding levels of consciousness and worlds within worlds. <coughs> he said, that's very exciting to me. And I was talking about the fact that his dedication to reading it and the fact that it consoles him and it lifts him and it's exciting to him and it opens his mind and it lifts his heart, is it ranks it for me amongst the things that I would think of as a spiritual practice. And I would rank his dedication as his spiritual discipline. And I would say that because it keeps him alive and active and present and involved in the world, that it's part of his spiritual journey. It's the vehicle for his spiritual journey. 
And then we had a whole long talk about um, the, the little bit that I know about Carl Jung, not a lot at all, uh, but talking about um, personality typologies and maybe thinking people, people who really connect with their world experience that we all think. I think of myself as a thinker, but I don't think it's my primary category for connection with feeling alive. Uh, I think fine, but he likes to think about that makes him feel alive. And uh, in the Jungian typologies, there are the thinkers, there are the, the feelers, emotional types. Um, um, I don't want to really make it too small, but I want to get up to the third Zen patriarch. That just to be, ju- just to be, just to touch this for you, the people who connect through their head, the people who connect through their heart, who turn out to be bhakti people, they love to pray or to chant. Bhakti is a Hindu word. They love to pray. They love to chant. They love to sing. Um, uh, love poems to God. Rumi is a great bhakti. Uh, um, Kabir, Hafiz. Uh, those are great bhakti people, the people who connect to their sense of um, what's bigger than themselves, connect to, connect to the sense of what makes them alive by making love to it, in a way, by singing to it, um, by writing poetry. And then there are the people who connect in a, in a direct way. People will say, you know, I'm a hands-on type of person. I really... Um, I really connect with people. I like to get things done. Kind of people in the Jungian typologies, they'd be sensate people. Mm-hmm. That when they've been somewhere and you say, what was it like? They could tell you really what it looked like and smelt like and felt like and who was there. I'm really not good at that. Um, I don't remember very well what people look like. So that when I, the people know me now, so it's okay. But I'll meet people at retreat who I've worked with a lot, but I haven't seen them in a year. So their face doesn't quite screw together in a way that resonates to me. But they, when we, they come in, they say, I'm so glad to see you again since last year. I think since last year. And then they say, well, you remember my sister was then pregnant with twins and my father had macular degeneration. Then I remember the whole story. And then I remember who they are because I file people by what's their story, not by what do they look like. I'm not, I, don't, I just don't have a good ability for that. Every time I, I stand next to Jack, I think so tall. You know, and, I, <laughs> and I've known him for 25 years, but it's not how I file him. You know, that, so uh, I don't see that way, but I, I, the, the fourth type of, by the way, those kinds of people connect to being alive through relationship. They do. Uh, they get things done. They serve. Uh, I mean, we all serve. We all think. We all feel. We all serve. <laughs> But the you know I, the fourth type are the intuitives, the people who uh, uh, love to meditate. It's like I won't even think about it. I'll wait for it to come to me. Uh, that they have the just the mind is set up that way. It's not better or worse. It's just a way that people are. People are given to reverie or uh, waiting for the answer or able to go on a hunch. Uh, I think of myself primarily in that category. I have friends who uh, 
who's, who's uh, lived so fully in that category. I just love it when they come to visit me. I know that they will get up in the morning and say, where do you hear this dream I had? And yeah. it's so clear to me that, they're, and they've always had some spectacular, numinous dream, you know, that's weird. And uh, I really delight in them. I think, oh, look at that, that's lovely. If, uh, if, if, uh, if we were all considering entering uh, Catholic monastic orders and uh, we could figure out which of those typologies we were, we would decide to be Jesuits or Franciscans or Dominicans or Trappists, depending on whether we fell in one or another of those categories. But the point that I am trying to make is everybody finds the way that makes their connection. Every, everyone finds the way that connects them to the sense of alive, the sense of perspective <laughs> larger than this particular perspective that's my personal life unfolding with all its challenges, the perspective that's large enough to hold it. It's particularly important to me these days because I think so much about how are we going to have the heart to continue to manifest ourselves in the world every day with renewed courage and renewed vigor to make it a better place when, in fact, if you read the newspapers carefully, and even only the emails that come across that says, you know, notice this and do this. And how are we going to have the heart to keep doing that and not lose um, faith that it won't work? Uh, we will each of us find the way that lifts up our heart. I will read you this from the third Zen patriarch. I'll, I'd like to read it all the way through. And then we'll go back. It's very short. And I'd like to pretend that, uh, I'd like to ask you to pretend that, uh, certainly without any hubris, that you're hearing this for the first time. Some of you are hearing it. And what if this was the third Zen patriarch? It is the third Zen patriarch. He's just speaking through my voice. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness, be serene in the oneness of things, and such erroneous views will disappear by themselves. 
When you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. As long as you remain in one or another, you will never know oneness. For those who do not live in the simple way, fail in both activity and passivity, assertion and denial. To deny the reality of things is to miss their reality. To assert the emptiness of things is to miss their reality. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. To return to the root is to find the meaning, but to pursue appearances is to miss the source. At the moment of inner enlightenment, there is a going beyond appearance and emptiness. The changes that appear to occur in the empty world we call real only because of our ignorance. Do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Do not remain in a dualistic state. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there's even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. Although all dualities come from the one, do not be attached even to the one. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. When thought objects vanish and thinking subjects vanish, vanishes, as when the mind vanishes, objects vanish, Things are objects because of the subject, mind. The mind, subject, is such because of things, object. Understand the relativity of these two and the basic reality, the unity of emptiness. In this emptiness, the two are indistinguishable and each contains itself in the whole world. If you do not discriminate between coarse and fine, you will not be tempted into prejudice and opinion. To live in the great way is neither easy nor difficult, but those with limited views are fearful and irresolute. The faster they hurry, the slower they go. The clinging attachment cannot be limited. Even to be attached to the idea of enlightenment is to go astray. Just let things be in their own way and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and, when you walk, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. When thought is in bondage, the truth is hidden, for everything is murky and unclear, and the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. What benefits can be derived from distinctions and separations? If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. The wise man strives to know goals, but the foolish man fetters himself. There is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. To seek mind with the discriminating mind is the greatest of all mistakes. Rest and unrest derive from illusion. With enlightenment, there's no liking and disliking. 
All dualities come from ignorant inference. They are like dreams or flowers in air. Foolish try to grasp them. Gain and loss, right and wrong, such thoughts must finally be abolished at once. If the eye never sleeps, all dreams will naturally cease. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are as they are of single essence. To understand the mystery of this one essence is to be released from all entanglements. When all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. No comparisons or analogies are possible in this causeless, relentless state. Consider movement stationary and the stationary in movement both movement and rest disappear when such dualities cease to exist. Oneness itself cannot exist. To this ultimate finality, no law or description applies. For the unified mind, in accordance with the way, all self-centered striving ceases. Doubts and irresolutions vanish, and life in true faith is possible. With a single stroke, we are freed from bondage. Nothing clings to us and we hold to nothing. All is empty, clear, self-illuminating, with no exertion of the mind's power. Here, thought, feeling, knowledge, and imagination are of no value. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. To come directly into harmony with this reality is simp just simply say when doubt arises, not to. In this not too, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. And this truth is beyond extension or diminution in time or space. It is a single thought in 10,000 years. In it, a single thought is 10,000 years. Emptiness here, emptiness there, but the infinite universe stands always before your eyes infinitely large and infinitely small, no difference for definitions have vanished and no boundaries are seen. So too with being and non-being. Don't waste time in doubts and arguments that have nothing to do with this. One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Words. The way is beyond language, for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. It's hard to think of something to say after the third Zen patriarch. Did you have the experience that I had of every once in a while, it goes, for, it gets inscrutable. You think, what on earth is that? But then all of a sudden, ah! All of a sudden, there's a line that you get. Does one or another speak out to you? Every single line does not resonate with me exactly the same. Is that true for you? 
אז הם, 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 said that beautiful gorgeous prayer just before of who was Kalidasa third century fourth century <laughs> prayer of Kalidasa said no yesterday no tomorrow just today and here's the Zen patriarch says no yesterday no tomorrow no today ah let's <laughs> 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 move it one step further I just thought I had it narrowed down to at least today <laughs> But, ah, oh, wait a minute, there you go. There's Aaron's little book. I don't know, but Zen came to Japan, I think, a thousand years after the Buddha. So it's, it's relatively, do you know? Okay. Um, Neither his birth date nor his birthplace is recorded. Well, uh, <laughs> his death is said to have occurred in the year six, oh, 606 by our counting of time. Yeah, that would make it a thousand years after the Buddha, because it, I, I think that's the general rule about the, the Dharma coming to Japan about a thousand years later. Um, you want to start, for, well... I'll tell you what, I, I'll tell you the other part that I wanted to, the, the other little, I have two little pieces of contemporary writing that I uh, thought I would bring. One is a story, I wanted to make that into absolutely normal language. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Tamara Engel, who said, of course say my name. I taught it to my uh, uh, Dharma group at New York Insight, it's not a secret. Um, my friend Tamara Engel, who teaches mindfulness in New York, was teaching, I don't know if she was teaching the Zen Patriarch, but we have both been talking to each other about coming to a moment without a story, which is essentially what the Zen Patriarch is saying. Cease to cherish opinions. All the opinions, all the stories we tell ourselves about how the world is, how I am, how you are, how this person is, who that person is, are all based on stories. They're opinions. After all, they could be wrong. I've, I, you know, I have a great track record for being wrong. Uh, they're all opinions that I formed at a certain point, at, that were formed at a certain point in response to something or other, which for complicated reasons we then make as truths and views and we carry along with us. It was, I, I'm, I don't remember the context in which we were talking about, but we were talking about Maybe we were talking about the fact that the world situation will only change when people can put down their view for a little while and see over the top of their view and maybe notice that the other person's view is also interesting. Imagine, you know, if you see one of those debates where, oh, maybe an impassioned debate in the UN where somebody makes an impassioned plea on one side of an issue. What if some, all the people on the other side of the debate, uh, that presentation, when that person finished, said, well, you know, that's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way. You know, and they didn't just, like, 
counterattack and actually thought about it. And it, we can go a long way, and maybe we will actually talk about why do we get so entrenched in our views that it's so hard to put down the whole idea. It's a very big piece of my, my what I think about is my practice these days. I, I've been uh, thinking a lot about the line from uh, T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets where uh, freedom, or freedom really, is uh, the, the phrase that's used to talk about it is costing not less than everything. And that phrase has really been central to my practice these days because I think to myself, the everything that I have to give up, I don't know if this is true for you, is my views that I have that hold me back from completely meeting every moment new, if we go back to earlier this morning, and from meeting every person new, and from living out of that place of real lovingness that I know is my capacity when I'm not carrying around old stories about people. It's there, my old stories that I'm telling myself about them that cause me not to love everybody equally. Lana. I, I don't think you have to let go of them as much as to see them. Yeah. And then they don't have that. Well, they, yeah, yeah. You have to know about them. You have to know about them. You have to, that's a very extremely good point. You have to let go of the view. But you know it's a view, so you know it's just a view. It's just a view. And here comes so-and-so about whom I have that view. My view could even be right about so-and-so. But what doesn't have to be accompanying it <coughs> is a bad feeling. See, because I think that what really is under the whole thing, deeper than letting go of the view, is understanding that so-and-so is so-and-so just because the karma of things, they can't be otherwise. If I really had wisdom intact, the view would not be a problem. I wouldn't even be able to, I wouldn't even need to be on my case about having a view still. Have a view, you know. Uh, I have lots of views. That's I always had trouble getting past the first line of this. The great way is difficult for those who have no preferences. I have a preference about practically everything. You know, that. I, uh, don't you think you do? I mean, down to everything. Do you, you know, go in an ice cream store? You don't say, give me anything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you do say. <laughs> I was actually this morning. I was, I was, I was playing with that idea in my mind as I was coming over here, and I was thinking of you and everything. And I was thinking of ice cream store. I was thinking of opera, and at this point in my life, for whatever reason. Someone said that we could go here and uh, hear Wagner or here and hear Puccini. At this point in my life, my, I, I prefer Wagner. Then I think, oh, that's even like a politically incorrect view <laughs> for me to have for complex reasons. I'm not supposed to prefer, but I do. You know, that's the, the, the problem. So you're, you get in, in a conflict with your own views. and It's so complicated to have a view. Uh, I just want to read you the one line about views from here that you probably noticed if you listen to James as much as I do. He has a, this wonderful line. Okay, remember, you remember this teaching from James talking about discovering in his own practice over the course of years how um, judgmental he is. 
and how painful it is. He said, I was judging everybody. He's noticed it particularly on retreat. And James is like, this is, you know, this, uh, all comparisons are, uh, wait a minute, uh, invidious, my father said. Anyway, the comparisons aside, James truly is the most lovely person in the world. But <coughs> that's not a comparison. That's just a view. That's the truth. Not even a truth. Uh, anyway, James is really expansive. When I have a trouble with, no, in truth, when I have a trouble with somebody, I go to talk to James about it because he will always have a way of redeeming that person and making the view bigger. He's very good on that. And it, so he tells a story about discovering in himself over his years of practice how many views he had and how painful they were, judgments about people. And he decided he took the, a particular line from somewhere, and I didn't know it was the Third Zen Patriarch until I, every time I read it, I said, oh, that's where James got the line. And he said every time he, uh, he had a practice then, that every time, especially on retreat when you have time to do this, somebody's eating too fast and too noisy. <laughs> So you think to yourself, well, that person is not eating mindfully at all. <laughs> and then he would obligate himself at that point to say, and the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. What benefit can be derived? <laughs> <laughs> so and he said it became so annoying to say that long mouthful every time he had a judgment, since he had so many judgments every day that the judgments began to fall in and also began to show him how much pain he was in. You know, he was just constantly judging this, judging that, no good, good, semi-good, better, less good. And <clears throat> this is what I wanted to teach you from tomorrow. He said, this has to do with having a story which then prevents us from entering a situation new uh, and in, in causes us pain before the situation pain in the situation and pain after the situation, and the possibility of not having a story. Um, so this is Tamara. She wrote me and said, I had just taught this in class. And, uh, she said, I told, I told my class a teaching story um, uh, about loving kindness. It was in the context of loving kindness and the function of loving kindness meditation from my own ex divorce experience. A short time after my divorce, I knew that my former husband was dating someone. This uh, did not seem to me just or fair. My fear that it was that since he lived just a block away, I would meet them on the street, on the bus, at the supermarket. Of course, in this fantasy, I would always be alone and they would be happily together. Much to my surprise, in four years, I never saw them together and rarely even saw my former husband on the street. During that year period, I had begun meditating and was also doing loving-kindness meditation. One beautiful spring Saturday evening, to be exact, I was decided to take a walk in Riverside Park and walk along the Hudson River to watch the sunset. I was very happy and all seemed right with the world. As I was walking, I saw my former husband and his partner of four years walking hand in hand and approaching me from a distance. I thought, oh no, in my fantasy it was never this bad. <laughs> never did I imagine this happening on a beautiful Saturday night. <laughs> 
what should I do? I can't disappear. <laughs> Spontaneously, I found myself reciting loving-kindness phrases first to myself and then to them. Then I felt good and calm and not embarrassed or ashamed. By the time we passed each other, I was able to express a sincere hello. I think we might have even shared some small talk about the beautiful spring evening. When I told this to the class, one man responded, you are enlightened. <laughs> and the whole class all agreed. <laughs> but, and she goes on to say, I, she said, I agreed that it was an enlightened moment. It is an enlightened moment. I don't, you know, I don't think we get to be enlightened forever, but that's an enlightened moment. You come into it awake. Uh-oh, this is worse than I ever imagined. This is worse <laughs> than the bus or the supermarket or the dry cleaners. This is really bad. And they see me at a distance. I'm alone, the whole thing. And to be able to say, here it is, now do it. What should I do? And have the space in the mind to be able to say, to really meet them with a good heart, not to fake it. And that she made the space in the mind by doing loving kindness first for herself. You realize, I'm in pain. Eek, this is the worst. Here comes my former husband with his partner holding hands. Moon is shining, Riverside Drive, river, the whole thing. Uh, so I'm in pain. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free of suffering. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free of suffering. And the mind releases and you're okay. And then you look at them and they're folks walking along. They're not my former husband and the woman that he now has chosen and I'm alone. It's no stories on anybody. If you could do a life without stories, you'd be free. If I could do my life without stories. <clears throat> the thing is, we need the stories because we have to remember where to go home. And so the, to, to somehow have the stories, as Ilana was saying, it's not about forgetting. Well, some stories we do forget, you know. I, I don't want to forget where to go home. I want to forget who I had a grudge on so that I meet them all the time fresh. And that certainly has happened to me over time when I've had a view of somebody for a long time. And then the view suddenly, in a moment of grace, gets shifted around and see that person in a new way. The new way, I think, that we have to see somebody always as a person just like me who's struggling with a life you know, sometimes when you suddenly hear a story about a person about whom you've really had some grudge because they insulted you or did you wrong or something or other, or you feel like they injured you or offended you, and then you hear that they're in some difficult straits, their partner is dying of something dreadful, or they've lost their job, or Something bad has happened to them. I 
heard a story yesterday. Of course, I don't even know the, the particulars are all um, protected and confidential, and I'll protect them and make them more confidential. I heard a story about a person who was um, lost um, his or her membership in a professional organization for an episode of unethical conduct. Happens. It's a person of considerable distinction. And I really felt terrible for that person. You know, they made a mistake. The, the law is such that, I mean, I didn't mean I had a grudge on that person, but I didn't have like a, even a, any kind of a lot of freedom. But all of a sudden you realize people are really struggling, you know. People make mistakes in their lives. You, know? you hear about a story like that. Everybody is struggling in their lives. Now, I, I, you know, I don't want to be so grandiose as to imagine that all these wars that are going on are going on because we haven't noticed that other people are struggling. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's because we imagine that our struggle is worse and worth making the other person pain over. But everybody's struggle is bad. So that was one piece of having a view. I want to read the very beginning paragraph and then let's talk about it a little bit more. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. I'll tell you the one other thing that I brought in to share, and let's think about what you have to share about this. This is Wendell Berry. Uh, you reading any Wendell Berry recently? I don't have the piece with me now, but there's a wonderful line where he said, um, the most important um, harvest, the most important crops of any year's harvest are the farmer's mind and the cropland itself. And that, there's got another little piece after that. And then it says, make, uh, make for the farmer a new head, make for the world. I suppose, I don't know. Uh, there's something about redeeming the world, and that, that the, the farmland that we're working with is the whole farmland of the whole world. And we need a change of mind, a change of uh, you need a change of mind to heal the earth. Make it the, the, the two most important crops in any year's harvest are the farmer's mind and the cropland itself. 
that somehow we all get cultivated, not just we grow the food for them. It could be short. Anyway, Wendell Berry, uh, out of um, Sierra Magazine. I am a conservationist and a farmer, a wilderness advocate and an agrarian. I am in favor of the world's wilderness, not only because I like it, but also because I think it's necessary to the world's life and our own. For the same reason, I want, to preserve the I want to preserve the natural health and integrity of the world's economic landscapes, which is to say that I want the world's farmers, ranchers, and foresters to live in a stable, locally adapted, resource-preserving community. I want them to thrive. One thing that means is I have spent my whole life on two losing sides. As long as I have been conscious, the great causes of agrarianism and con conservation, despite local victories, have suffered, have suffered an accumulation of losses, some of them probably irreparable, while the third side, that of the land-exploiting corporations, has appeared to grow even richer. I say appeared because I think their wealth is illusory. Their capitalism is based, finally, not on the resources of nature, which it is recklessly destroying, but on fantasy. Not long ago, I heard an economist say, if the consumer ever stops living beyond his means, we'll have a recession. <laughs> and, two, and the two sides of nature and rural communities are being defeated on the third side that will eventually be found to have defeated itself. Later on, he says, the two sides, uh, my sorrow for having been for two, so long on two losing sides has been compounded by knowing that these two sides have also been in conflict, not only with their common enemy, but also now almost conventionally with each other. And I am further aggrieved in understanding that everybody on my two sides is deeply implicated in the sins and in the fate of the self-destructive third side. So as part of my own effort to think better, I decided not long ago that I would not endorse any more wilderness preservation projects that do not seek also to improve the health of surrounding economic landscapes and human communities. It's very, very good, Wendell Berry. The whole idea of could I be on both sides, you know, it has a very good tradition in... Uh, in uh, spiritual literature, I'm just remembering as I read that, um, that it, I think it's in Jack's book, um, Tales of the Spirit, the one he's written with uh, Christina Feldman, that's uh, uh, spiritual stories from different spiritual traditions. I can't tell whether this particular story is, because uh, I've heard it told as a Sufi story and I've told it uh, told as a Hasidic story, but the story is the same is uh, that a couple comes to the Sufi master or the Rebbe, couple in dispute, and the first person tells their side of the story, says this, 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 and this, and the, uh, the Sufi master, the Rebbe, says, you're right. And uh, then the second person says they all say this, 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 and this, this. It's like when you watch, I, I, I don't watch this, but I hear on TV there are courts that you can watch. They all think, da 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 get all finished, and the adjudicator, whoever it is, says, you're right too. And uh, the assistant to who's ever judging 
comes and whispers in that person's ear and says, look, uh, you said the first person was right, and then you said the second, the second person has a different idea. You said that person was right too. Says, you're right too. <laughs> so, uh, but it's a very good story. You know, why? Because everybody is absolutely right from their point of view. Nobody goes to court to present a case that they don't see absolutely as open and shut their truth. That's the way they see it. The most functional way, although I don't know, I haven't really done this a lot, but a friend of mine who's a very good uh, psychotherapist with couples told me that what she did with people is when they were going along in their discussion, you could see it was now beginning to go down the track of, uh, of a dialogue that people have done so many times. How many people can resonate to this? You have done this so many times that everybody knows the words. It's like a play, you know. It's like someone gave out a script. It always gets down to, well, you know, if you hadn't had the mother that you had, you know, and if 15 years ago you hadn't done that thing which so engraved itself in my mind that I can't now free myself of it. You know, it's a, somebody, we bring back all the, the, the 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 more wounding in the moment, the further back we go for ammunition. <laughs> um, and call it up, and so then everybody, but it's going down predictable lines. At that point, it's a script. You've done it 673 times. At that point, since everybody knows the script, she stops the people and says, change the script. They hand it over. Give the other person your script. And now they have to argue your case. You know, it's like I should suddenly be on CNN, on Crossfire, on the side that I absolutely don't believe. Uh, someone once said about uh, the uh, news hour on public radio that the problem with the news hour is that they insisted that there were two sides to every situation. <laughs> that, actually, they don't do that so much anymore. It was better when they did. It's, um, but that's, that's a little editorial view. But anyway. Um, it's extremely interesting. I mean, if you could really do it, argue some other person's point of view, that other person who was your particular adversary in that moment, argue their point of view, feel it from their experience. If you could do it, it might not be that you would now be changed to that point of view. But maybe you could feel how that point of view feels in that person. It's that person's truth. That's how it feels to them. How are you on that? Are you any good at that? David? Well, I think what happens to me in that situation, <laughs> boy oh boy, it has happened over and over and over again, is that when the situation forces me to do that, because it's true that when you're in a close relationship with somebody and you find yourself in certain positions, that just rings with familiarity. Mm -hmm. And actually taking the other person's position, how everyone does it when there's in one's mind, when actually does it. What happens to me is that I open up this little place in me which can grant that other person the space of feeling and rightness in some way. It doesn't alter that I feel right in my space, but just that acknowledgement causes a moment of relaxation so that I, at least, and I want to feel the other person, doesn't need to get out with quite 
the same mm. insistence that you're not seeing me, you're not hearing me. Mm. Because that's one of the core pieces mm -hmm. that causes us to stay so attached mm -hmm. to our position because we do not feel seen or heard. I think actually, what, what are you going to say, Miriam? Speak loud, Miriam. Oh, there's a model called compassionate listening. Mm -hmm. And I, I sent you an email about this. A friend of mine is going to Israel next week. And she's going to be spending time with the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Jews and uh, with a, 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 a group of people who will be simply listening mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. comment and without judgment. And I think that this is a component that we haven't mentioned, mm. that we're so often trying to understand or make the other person right or wrong. But if we can just listen, and this is what you said, that you don't hear me. Mm. And I've seen a film where this has been done in Israel, and it's an amazing, amazing change, because all people really want is to be listened to. Mm -hmm. So. Um, if you don't mind, if I could just say this up in peace, is that my friend uh, asked if we could just give her prayers because she's going to be staying in homes of Arabs and Palestinians mm -hmm. and she's Jewish and she's going to also be with Israelis. So if we, before we leave, let's just, you know, because I just mentioned that because it's right appropriate with what you're talking about of people just going and listening. Mm -hmm. We will do that. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm very glad that the three of you said that because the component, the, the operative, um, I mean, the whole thing, it's, it's self-evident, but I'm thinking about so many times the phrase was to be seen or to be heard, mm -hmm. that somehow the great relief that happens in a person when they think the other person got it. Mm -hmm. They don't have to believe it, they don't have to agree with it, but if they get it, there's something about uh, our sense of... of um, I don't know whether it's that I don't exist or uh, that a feeling of lonesomeness. If there's something that the other person does to give me the sense, I think you will feel this as well, if I can do something to give another person a sense, that I heard what they said, I saw them in some way, then we feel in a certain way alive. Otherwise, we're not alive. Um, The, 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 the particular um, 
A particular line I remember, it's a little bit different, I suppose, with Marshall Rosenberg, everybody who teaches it, because all these wonderful teachers now of ways of conflict resolution. The particular line that my friend, who was a therapist, um, taught me was to say back to a person, what I uh, hear you saying you feel is, da-da-da. So the, in some way, uh, I can say it close enough so that they know that I actually heard what they said. I have to look for something that resonates, not to necessarily use a formula, but not that I agree with you, but what I heard you say was that when I say a thing like that, what you feel is something. That something that, so that something resonates. I think fundamentally it's that we should stop feeling afraid. You know, that what sometimes when we feel we're not heard, we have to speak louder mm-hmm. so that we'll be heard. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, Rosemary. non-poison mushrooms over poison mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's how it gets down to the fear. I mean, I feel some fear in there that mm-hmm. says, that wants to hold on to mm-hmm. those preferences, that says that's who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the part that's confusing mm-hmm. for me. I, mm-hmm. you know, as much as I would like to you know, I think, I'm just looking at the clock and I know that we have to leave in a few minutes and I want us to pray for, for that and for everything else. But I, wanna, I, I actually want to continue this discussion when we come back, if you like it. I, say, I mean, this is a really important piece of poetry. Because the, the immediate answer that comes up for me when you say that is I think about the difference between um, a discrimination, these are poison mushrooms, these are not poison mushrooms, um, and, and clearly one is a skillful choice and one is an unskillful choice. Um, and then I think, well, maybe that's a way of avoiding... Is that what the Zen patriarch is saying? Because maybe he's saying preferring life over death is already a problem. You know, um, you know, it's another way. You know, that, that, um, and we may, uh, you know, in this moment, I don't know if I want, but maybe I do. I think we're in a position now. Maybe it's our job. Not only we're in that position, but maybe it's part of the task of being a Dharma student. Uh, all of us in the 21st century in another culture uh, with a with a whole framework of world uh, world awareness that wasn't available in a different cultural set to say you know um, I not only want to discriminate between mushrooms but I want to discriminate as well between political ideologies and uh, I want to uh, manifest my, not just in my mind, don't have to hate anybody in my heart. I do have to make that phone call today 
to say, did you get the email yesterday that said, call Diane Feinstein's office in, in Washington? Did you do it? Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, and did you call, you know, call people, say do it? If you didn't do it yesterday, it's probably late if they do the vote today. Voting to uh, possibly repeal the estate tax on the uppest, richest people in the country. Um, so in the middle of all the emails about do this, do that, is an email from somebody who said, call these numbers now. So if you didn't get the email, you couldn't have done it. But if you did get the email, I feel like if I got the email, I have to do it. Mm -hmm. And it takes, it takes one minute. You make the phone call, you do it. Um, because we do discriminate, and then we act on those discrimination. Now, is that a latter-day Western uh, approach that says, you know, that that says, uh, uh, you know, what I, what I do uh, makes a difference on the level of uh, individual of, of individual separate lives now, and can I really have a clear vision that on some level? Uh, that's not two. You know, that that uh, when we were talking about the conflict resolution just a minute ago, I was thinking about the, the Zen patriarch saying, if anything arises of uh, disturbing the mind, you can say to yourself, not to. And I was thinking about when you, when everybody was talking about conflict resolution situations, because in the middle of a conflict, you think, uh-oh, it's me and them. And if you could think in that moment, not to, just life trying to work itself out, maybe that's helpful. But maybe in a moment of discrimination, poison mushrooms, not poison mushrooms, repeal the estate tax, not repeal, maybe it's two. <laughs> or maybe there's a discrimination, and maybe we're called upon to do something. Does the cultural context make a difference in, on essential dharma? Is this essential dharma, or is this the Zen patriarch talking about what's, what's the dharma of the Buddha? Would the Buddha have said that? Uh, does it matter? What if the Buddha said this if we don't feel that? You know, are we obligated, as a 21st century dharma practitioners, to do it the way anybody said? Uh, or obligated instead to say, what's the truth for now? What is wholesome now? What is for the benefit of all beings? Is it, we could just take that line and say that's what we're going to operate at? That's it. What's for the benefit of all beings now? Please. Remember that was one of the Buddhist teaching rules. You know, don't disbelieve this. Take this into your experience. See if it's true. See if it works. So, you know what? When we start again in uh, in a couple of weeks, and I'm back, um, even to take that one word, uh, two words out of what Ruth just said, is that if it works, what is it, and what does works mean? You know. I have a different sense of what works means. Someone says to me, what is, does your practice work? I would understand that differently now than I would have 25 years ago. I mean, I, I think 25 years ago I was looking to calm myself. I would, have, I would have said it's working. I'm not so nervous, not so frightened, I'm not so overwhelmed by 
uh, worrying about what's going to happen in life. Just it was good for my nervous system. It worked. Actually, I, I find myself... Um, I was telling somebody yesterday that... Uh, uh, oh, I didn't say I was uncalm, but I said I was becoming more of a preacher than I've ever been before. That uh, I listened to myself and I'm sort of, you know, did you make the phone call? Did you march? Did you get out there? <laughs> and I find myself in more and more venues saying to people, if we're not out there making a difference in the world, then the practice is not working. It's supposed to work in here, and it's supposed to then work in here to such a degree that you know for sure that peace is possible in a human being. And therefore, it propels you out in the street to tell it to everybody. So I feel all of a sudden like in the, in the lineage of prophets who needed to run out and tell everybody about it. So, um, maybe, uh, maybe that's okay. Um, it's got to be okay. It's what it is. <laughs> it's the okayest I can do. Let's sit for a minute and um, pray for uh, Miriam. Miriam's friend is going. Do I tell us her name so we can Aaron think? Erin Kalish. And think about everybody else that you know in your life, struggling, facing a challenge. May all beings everywhere be sustained. May our good wishes for them be a form of um, holding of hands or our heart reaching out towards them near or far with some gift of uh, energy and courage. You might hold the hand of the person next to you if you want for a minute. When we hold somebody's hand, it's, it's, it's as if we say not, uh, not to. Oh, the hand of a sick person is not two. It's the both of us together. Oh, the hand of a dying person. You participate in their dying. You participate in people's getting born. We all participate. All just doing this life together. And sometimes we get to touch people with our hands and sometimes with our thoughts. May all beings be peaceful, sustained in their difficulty. May no one suffer. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.